We're going to be in James chapter 5, and this is really sort of the more towards the end of the book. I'm going to be looking specifically starting in verse 13. But in the book of James, this is sort of a bookend. If you recall last week, I, I taught on the initial exhortation to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. The writer of James was not ignorant of the trials that people were going through. In fact, the initial words of the book show that he was writing to persecuted believers. He talked about the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. That doesn't just mean they moved out. It means they were forced to scatter because of persecution. So these were individuals who had suffered greatly. Not only that, they had their own struggles with sin that were within the church. There apparently was an issue of favoritism in the church. Chapter 2 makes that clear. They were paying a little bit too much attention to people with flashy clothes and jewelry, thinking, hey, these rich people can help me. And the writer of the book, Jesus' half-brother James, was saying, well, that's foolishness. The rich are the ones who are oppressing you. I don't know what you think you're going to get from them. But beyond that, it's sin. It's wrong. And so he was dealing with people who had gone through a lot. So they had endured persecution. They had endured struggles with sin. And the beginning of chapter 5 talks about the fact that many of them were violently oppressed by wealthy people. Which is the foolishness of them in chapter 2. Trying to seek favor with wealthy people because wealthy people were destroying them. Some of them were working and not getting paid couldn't imagine they were working hard in the field laboring they they needed that money to eat it wasn't anything and yet people were saying nope i can make a little bit more profit if i don't pay employees there were at least some who were living the good life and they were persecuting believers some even to the point of death so these individuals were going through a lot of hardship Which is why at the beginning of the book, he sort of prefaced everything to say, you've got to have the right perspective on this hardship. Because you're going to encounter a lot of trials. You're going to encounter various types. And in the midst of it all, you should be able to find joy because God is using these trials to mature you into the type of believer he wants you to be. And so at the end of the book, there's some closing exhortations, but they're directly tied to everything that preceded Verse 7, for example, he talks to them about being patient. Patience must have been in short supply when you feel like you're constantly under assault. There's constantly issues going on. Verse 9, don't complain. You can imagine when you're already persecuted, you've had to leave your home, you've been scattered. Wherever you go, you're not getting paid sometimes, you're being persecuted sometimes, you're being mistreated sometimes. Even believers who could help you look at you and say, be warm, be filled. Uh, We'll see you next week. He's saying, don't complain. That's not the response. And then in verse 13, he picks right up on a theme that I think ties well with where we were. And I'm going to focus my time this morning dealing with some principles of prayer that come from these few verses. I'm going to begin in verse 13. I'm going to read through the first part of verse 16 where a sentence ends, but follow along with me. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. 
Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. These are just a few verses in the broader context of the book, but they're a concluding encouragement, so to speak. And it's an encouragement in the sense of he's showing them how to be doers of the word. If you recall, the, the theme of this book, and I, in the past I've covered it in more details in chapter 1, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And at the end of the book, in the midst of dealing with people who are suffering and they're going through a lot, he's telling them this is how you're a doer of the word in this one particular area. And the focus this morning is going to be on prayer. I think that's the focus of the text and that's where we're going to Focus, it's a, another part of enduring trials. At the beginning of the book, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. That says if you don't know where, which way to turn in the midst of your trials, you ask God, God will help you. And at the end of the book, you see this same exhortation, come to God with your troubles. So I'm, I'm just dividing this up into three principles and the wording is not... Um, particularly insightful or anything catchy, but it's a simple summation of what we're going to look at today. And the first exhortation, the first principle of prayer is this, pray during good times and bad. It couldn't be more simple. Pray during good times and bad. Now he starts off with something very, very simple. Is anyone among you suffering? That's in the context, not really a hypothetical. It's not really, well, maybe some of you might be suffering. He knows there are people suffering. Just like I know some of you are hurting today. On any given week, you've had a series of events that occurred from the time you left church last Sunday until the time you showed up this morning, and often they're painful. But some were suffering, and he's saying, is anyone among you suffering? It's, it's a question, but he already knows the answer. And he's telling you, if you're suffering, let me tell you what you do. Then he must pray. Then he must pray. Again, this is a bookend with the exhortation at the beginning to go to God for wisdom in the midst of trials. And this idea of suffering has the connotation of an enduring hardship. Not just a bad day, although we can have in a series of events that occur that cause issue. This is beyond and a stronger idea. It's an enduring hardship. People experiencing misfortune and calamity. I think it includes every aspect of life. I think it includes physical issues. I think it includes family issues. I think it includes when people are persecuted for their faith, when they have issues at work, when they have unfair bosses, when they have financial struggles. Believe in the context, any time you are enduring serious trials, this is the command. Pray. And that is a command. It says pray. 
without bothering you with the nuances of the language, the idea is that it's continual praying. It's supposed to be our habit and practice that when we suffer, we pray. There's a particular commentator that I, I like everything he's written that I've ever read, but he has this comment. He says, Instead of indulging in introspective self-pity or complaining loudly to others of this terrible situation, let him turn to God for refuge and strength. I think that's exactly what James is saying. He has just said, be patient. He's just said, don't complain. And here he's saying, this is what you should be doing. That's what we are supposed to be. And it can be hard for us because our first reaction is often just to feel sad for ourselves. Or our first reaction is to complain. Or to have some reason why we're not joyful. But what the writer is trying to teach us and what we should be hardwired to do is that as soon as things turn south, we should turn to God. First reaction, turn to God. We're going to see some more things, and and there is a place for turning to the church. We're going to see that. There's a place for turning to one another, but those aren't substitutes for turning to God. I can tell you when I have something that's really weighing on my heart, there's generally only one person on the planet that I'll talk to, and it's Debbie. I have a poker face, and I don't share with anybody what I'm thinking generally. I'll share something, but I'll turn to Debbie. And there are times when I turn to Debbie and I forget to turn to God. And I love her greatly and she's a great help. But I have to myself learn not just to talk to my wife, to talk to God. And I need to talk to him first. I think that's the lesson for all of us. So if you already do that, I encourage you keep doing it. That is the right reaction. But I think there's an interesting placement of two thoughts in this verse because right after he says if you're suffering then he must pray he said is anyone cheerful is anyone cheerful he understands how life works for every time somebody has tears there's somebody smiling in the body of christ it can be awkward when you want to praise god and you have a great joy and you're around people who are really suffering but you shouldn't feel guilty about having joy in your heart, about being cheerful, about things going positively, because that's an evidence of God's mercy as well. And he's really, he's covering the bookends of human experience. When you're at your lowest, you turn to God. When you're at your highest, what do you do? Let him sing praises. He is to sing praises. Now, if you can't sing, don't get tripped up by that. Because I I can assure you this isn't talking about the sound of your voice. This is talking about the attitude of your heart. And the idea here is primarily not a Sunday morning when we're about to sing together. Although I love those times. This is talking about a personal expression of praise. This is a personal moment of joy in the heart. And it's a good reminder for him to say... Turn to God, sing praises to God when you're cheerful. It's a good reminder that prayer isn't just for what we need. God, please give me. God, please take away. God, please. God, please. It's also for when God has given us abundantly. We say thank you. And we praise him. 
Praise is another form of prayer. And the Psalms are filled with this type of praise to the Lord. There's a few references. Psalm 104 verse 33 says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Psalm 146.2, I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. It's a continuing thought. It's just an attitude of praise. It's an attitude of joy. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. Even in Ephesians 5, it talks about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 has a similar thought. So when things are going well, if you came here this morning and you're praising the Lord because some things went your way, then you praise God and you don't feel guilty about praising God. You're supposed to. You're commanded to sing songs of praise. Now, of course, we understand also, based on what we learned last week, we're supposed to, even in the midst of the suffering, consider it all joy. So it's not inappropriate to praise God even in the hard times. One of the most visual thoughts of Scripture that comes to my mind is in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. They had been struck with many blows. They were miserable. It says they were thrown into the inner prison. Their feet were fastened in stocks. And it says, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That's the kind of heart we want, that can praise God no matter the circumstances. But particularly when things are going good, we praise God. So this really is just a picture and a reminder that no matter what's going on in your life, we should be praying. We should be turning to God, whether things are good or they're bad. But also, and there's a very specific reference going to the next verse, the second principle is if you're sick, ask for prayer. If you're sick, ask for prayer. Verse 14 is an interesting verse. Verse 14 and 15 have been misunderstood. They're distorted by some people. But they have a very clear command, and I want to try and explain best I can what I think it actually means, and don't get distracted if you hear it distorted in other context he says is anyone among you sick again he's just asking these questions you suffering pray you cheerful sing praises anybody sick he could even be a part of the suffering but is anybody sick says then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. But this has incredible truth wrapped up just in the very beginning. If anyone is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church. The idea of sick, again, can be comprehensive. Some people feel spiritually sick, but the reality is I think this is talking about regular physical illness. And and it's not just a minor illness. This has the idea not of a common cold. This has the ideal of, of a more severe illness. The word there conveys the idea of being without strength. It's somebody who is sapped. It's someone who is truly ill. 
probably we're talking more debilitating conditions, but I jumps into my mind of cancer or heart issues, major illnesses. This is someone who is sick, and it's very serious. And James says that someone who is sick must call for the elders of the church. There's a couple things that jump out at me about this, and then I'm going to confess something to you in just a minute. First thing that jumps out to me is certainly we pray for ourselves. If we're suffering, we pray. It's not saying don't do that. But the writer is taking it out of the realm of self-sufficiency, and he's saying if you are sick, don't just keep it to yourself. And in fact, he's saying put aside this mindset of, well, I don't want to burden other people. I don't want to be a bother. James is saying this is a command. You summon the elders of your church. Now, it's interesting. The command is not to the elders to go find sick people. I can tell you this is not a mega church, but we have 500 plus people here on a Sunday morning. We have nine elders. As much as we try, it's impossible for us to know everything that's going on. We don't. If people don't tell us, we don't have any way of knowing sometimes. And with that many people coming through the doors, as much as we try, we miss things. Steve and I recently heard of someone who's not currently local, but they passed away. We never even got word. Nobody told us. Now, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I'm just saying the idea here is that as a member of a local body, you have a responsibility. Let the elders know what's going on. Reach out to them. And I can assure you, if you do, we will pray for you. In fact, that's what the elders are commanded to do. The elders are supposed to respond in the way. If we're called, then we're supposed to pray over the individual. We're supposed to pray over the sick person. It's almost the image of someone sort of on a sick bed, so to speak, and the elders gathering around and praying over them. I can tell you when we pray for people, we do physically lay our hands on the individual we're praying for. And then each one of us, in turn, prays for the person. Now, I mentioned to you, and I said how important for it is for you to call the elders. And this is the confession part, because I've thought about this a lot. I thought about it before I was teaching today. I was reminded of it while I was looking over my notes to teach this again. And so I'm speaking to a certain type of person, and that type of person is like me. And if none of you suffer from my defects, praise the Lord for you. I am a very proud man, and in general, I'm not a needy person. What do I mean by that? I don't need a lot of reinforcement and a lot of pats on the back. I always appreciate it, and I'm very thankful for those things. But I'm just wired differently. I've said to people, if I wasn't a Christian, and praise the Lord that I am, Debbie and I could live on an island and we wouldn't miss anybody. We're just different that way. So I'm not a relational person where I always have to be around people. But when Debbie got cancer, I didn't do this. There's no good reason for it other than my pride. And it was such foolishness on my part. I think it was even offered. I can tell you I wouldn't do that again. Because what I mistake in my mind of, well, I'm being kind to other people and I don't want to bother, that's disobedience. 
So if you have those tendencies like I do to be self-sufficient, to tell people I can deal with my own business, let me encourage you in a biblical way, you've got to get past that. You've got to get over that because this is truly a command. So I want to encourage you, don't be like me in that regard. But the idea is that the elders are called and then the elders spring into action. Now there's a reference in this context to the elders anointing the head of the person with oil in the name of the Lord. And the best understanding that at least we have is that really this is more of a symbolic picture. Some people get into ideas that maybe at that time olive oil had a medicinal purpose. Certainly when Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan, they put oil on the wounds. But I don't believe in studying this passage that this is calling on the elders to take on a medical responsibility. Rather, what it is, is it's calling the elders as the leaders of the church to gather around and unite their hearts before the Lord to pray for this person who is sick. That's ultimately the issue. As we gather together as an elder board to pray over someone, we're calling for God's blessing in their life to raise them up. We never know the outcome But that's our responsibility. So let me encourage you, if you're going even now through a serious illness, reach out to the elders. Let us know, and we will pray for you. Now, verse 15 is where people get tripped up. And there's a lot of aberrant theology that stems from verse 15. And so I want to carefully wade through the verse and say what it means and what it doesn't mean. He says, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now we have to look at this and we have to, this is one of those times where you have to take a verse of scripture and put it in the context of all of scripture. Because if you only took this verse, it would seem as though if you just read it at a first glance, well, hey, once the elders pray, it's all done. They're healed. And yet we know that's not the case. Every sick person isn't restored. Some people who are sick don't get better. Now even in the context when it says that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one, it's looking future. It's not talking about instantaneous anything. It's a future tense. It's looking into the future. And it's saying if you pray in faith, restoration can occur. And the idea here is picturing almost the Lord raising somebody up. You could picture someone on a sick bed and they're sapped of energy and sapped of strength and suddenly they're able to get up and start moving again. And what causes issues is there's a big segment of Christianity, whether I would put them in our category or not, they fit under what people think of as Christian that take this as an unconditional formula and they make healing an act of the human will. They say, if you have faith, everybody gets healed. I don't want to send you searching for these people, but there are countless of these false teachers out there. They all generally trace their roots back to an original Ken Hagen, and his offshoots are the younger Ken Hagen and Kenneth Copeland. 
I say Ken Hagen. Is that his first name? Is I thought so. And there's endless variants of this. And what they would say is that if you are sick, here's the issue. You don't have faith. That's the reason Debbie had cancer and she wasn't instantly healed. She didn't have faith. Now, what's fascinating is all these teachers eventually die. So you work on that for a while. But the reality is, even great men in the Bible couldn't heal at their own will. There was a period of time where the Apostle Paul was capable of healing sick people. And yet there also came a time where he had to tell Timothy, well, take a little wine for your stomach. He didn't just say have faith and your stomach will be okay. It's a lack of faith, Timothy. You're you're thinking wrong. I think it's interesting, although there's a lot of debate about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, he couldn't even get that removed. Prayed three times that a thorn of the flesh, a messenger of Satan, would be removed from him, and God said, no, 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 this is part of my will for you. This is going to keep you humble. So understand that whatever is being taught in verse 15, it's not teaching that God is at our beck and call, and that if we work up the right state of mind in our heart, we can impose our will on a situation either as an elder board as an individual that's not what he's teaching in fact even Jesus prayed Lord if you're willing do you recall as he was facing the reality that he was going to experience the wrath of God in our place he understood like we still can't comprehend what he was going to endure when the father turned his face away and he said if there's any other way God But he said, but not my will, your will be done. So nothing that James is teaching is contradicting that God is sovereign. Nothing that James is teaching is saying that we can impose our will, either as an elder board or as individuals, that transcends what God has ordained. That's why these pastors are so damaging, because they distort scripture and they distort hope. And they live in luxury while people suffer and die following their false teaching. No, the idea here is that we as an elder board pray and we pray that God's will be done. And God can heal people. And God can restore people. And when we pray, we pray specifically that people will be healed. We don't pray generically. We pray that God would take away whatever the issue is. And we pray with as much faith as we have, that that will be the case. And that's obedience to the command. People will be raised up spiritually. People will be raised up if their hearts are right emotionally. But but don't misunderstand. This doesn't guarantee that everybody gets healed from every illness. Now James says something else, and I'm going to tie it in and And as I was thinking it through, this ties in with communion, even though it won't seem like it at first. It says, In the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now this seems like an odd mix to throw in there. And you can almost picture, and it's not hard to picture, how the Catholic Church has distorted this teaching in part, along with some others, to say that you go to a priest and the priest has the power to forgive your sins. But that's not what's being taught here at all. And I don't think that's the only place they would go. 
if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. How in the world does this get tied in to the elders coming to pray for a sick person? Well, first, from a cultural context, sin and sickness always went hand in hand in a lot of the thinking at that time. And sometimes it was wrong thinking. What do I mean by that? For example, in John chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples were walking past a man who had been born blind. And his disciples asked him very specifically, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. Now I could teach on John chapter 9 and that's a whole other story. But the idea was this. It was a common misconception amongst people at that time that sin was always the cause of illness. So you have a man born blind and the rabbis taught that either he had sinned in the womb, which is hard to comprehend... Or his parents had sinned and that was their affliction was that they had a son who was born blind. Now Jesus disabused that notion in this context. But that was a common thought of the time. But James isn't picking up a false thought and throwing it in here. All sickness isn't caused by sin. Even though that was a common thought in the culture at the time. But, and this is important. This is important for us. Some sickness is caused by our personal sin. And I think this is the context of this passage. If your sickness, if your illness over which praying has occurred was a result of your personal sin, you have the comfort to know that not only is God caring about the physical side, but God will forgive those sins. This is really sort of a restatement of 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, why do I say this ties into communion? Because one of the things that Pastor Steve normally does every time of communion is he tells you to examine yourself. Why is that? Because the Bible talks about people who approach the communion table in an unholy way. And the Apostle Paul said some are sick for doing that and some died. Again, he's not putting the ability on the elders of the church to do something that only Christ can do. But he is acknowledging that there are times where our personal sin has been a root cause of our physical illness. He's not saying every time, but he said even in those circumstances, if that's the case, take comfort. Because your sins are dealt with. And that's the encouragement. Even if your sin has gotten to the point that you're like David in Psalm 32, that he hit it. And Pastor Steve recently taught on this, his body wasting away with groaning. So that the hand of God was pressing down upon him and his energy was sapped and he couldn't do anything. The promise is, if that's you, you can find hope. You can find healing by confessing your sins to God. That's what David did. That's what we're being called to do. Verse 16 picks up on this theme. And, and I would just include this as a final point. And I've got to wrap it up quickly because I ran a little bit over. It's appropriate to include others in your confession and prayer. You can include others in your confession and prayer. It says this. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
Again, this ties into that idea of examining yourselves to making sure that if you're suffering from a physical ailment, it's not because you're choosing to live in unconfessed sin. Sin can lead to weakness and sickness and death. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 teaches. So James is encouraging us that it's good to be accountable to one another. It's good to confess to one another. Now, I don't think he means that as soon as the church service starts, you stand up and say, Pastor Steve, can I have a few moments? I want to confess something. I don't think that's what he's talking about. This is more of a one-on-one meeting when you're sitting down with a brother or sister in Christ and you're having one-on-one accountability and you're letting them know, I'm struggling, pray for me. The idea is you're getting your struggle out in the open and God can deal with it and you have a brother or sister in Christ who can come alongside you and pray for you and help you in that struggle. Again, this is a command. This is an idea that we should be doing this. Recently, I talked about wanting people in our class to connect with one another. If you don't already meet with someone, I would encourage you to find someone to meet with, to talk to, someone that you can trust, that you can share your burden with them and it won't wind up on a Facebook page. That's always the danger in churches. Some people with, I won't even say they have good intentions, there are some gossips in the church and that's a tragedy. But you find someone that you know cares about you and you find someone, if you don't know that they care about you, get to know them so that you can learn to trust them. There should not be isolated Christians in the body of Christ, and there are. There probably are even in this class, and I don't always know it. One of Satan's techniques, if you watch, uh, I love the imagery that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around. I love the documentaries of nature. They're always looking for the weak animal. Okay, there's the little zebra. They're going to get that one. Or look at that wildebeest, it's a little bit weak, they're going to attack that one. And what they often do is they try and circle and isolate it from the rest of the animals. That's exactly what Satan wants to do to you when you're struggling with sin. He wants to build an island around you because then you will just wallow and suffer. And you might wind up like the, like King David with God's hand pressing down upon you. And I think the call of this text is yet another example of us realizing that we have to be a part of one another's lives. So let me, again, I've run a little bit longer than I wanted to. Let me close our time with prayer. But before I do, let me encourage you. If you have isolated yourself, if you tend to be a loner, or if you're like me, you're content to be isolated, you're content at times to be removed from people, let me encourage you to recognize the imperative that God places on you to make yourself vulnerable to the body of Christ, to be willing to share with one another, to be willing to share your burdens, to even share your struggles with sin so that you can find the healing that God wants for you. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I know the struggle of my own heart to be vulnerable. I don't want anybody to see me weak. I don't want anybody to see me struggle. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room. I pray that we can be transparent with one another, that we can be honest with one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength, even when it's hard, to pray in the way you've called us to pray. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.